I believe we're entitled to explore. Hmm. And part of exploration is scientific inquiry into everything that comes out of the ground, whether it's rocks, whether it's trees, whether it's people, whether it's animals, but certainly including these substances that give us an opportunity to experience life in a completely different way, because that's really what the psychedelics do. They show us that the reality we're in is not the only reality. There are other realities out there, just like we're learning now. When I was a kid, we thought the universe as we know it is, quote, the universe, and there were nine planets. And everybody accepted the fact that there were nine planets in our universe. But Nick, you and I, we, we know now, there are many more planets than that, and there are more universes. And so, by the same token, there are more realities. And the psychedelics, they offer us an opportunity to briefly live in a different reality. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I'm joined by author and clinical psychologist, Dr. Richard Miller, to talk about his latest book, Psychedelic Wisdom, The Astonishing Rewards of Mind-Altering Substances. Among many other topics, Dr. Miller discusses governmental disinformation about psychedelics, unwanted complications of medicine, continued use of psychedelics in later life, or in other words, not hanging up the phone, and healing with conscious intent. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Dr. Richard Lewis Miller has been a clinical psychologist for more than 60 years. He is host of the syndicated talk radio show, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. The founder of the nationally acclaimed Coke Enders Alcohol and Drug Program, he has been a faculty member at the University of Michigan and Stanford University and an advisor on the President's Commission on Mental Health. He is the author of Psychedelic Medicine. He joins me today to discuss his latest publication, Psychedelic Wisdom, The Astonishing Rewards of Mind-Altering Substances. Richard. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you, Nick. Glad to be here. Well, I'm, I'm very happy that you're here with me today, and I'm very much looking forward to speaking with you about your latest book, Psychedelic Wisdom. I enjoyed it quite a bit. One thing, though, that kind of came to mind is I know that authors don't always have a lot of control over titles or subtitles, but I really wish that psychedelic elders <laughs> had been part of the title or subtitle, because that's one of the primary focuses of the book. You're interviewing, what was it, 19 psychedelic elders, correct? Correct. Okay. So I think that one of the first questions is I really want to explore this idea of the psychedelic elder a little bit, because I see them as being so crucially important, especially where we are today and what many are referring to as this psychedelic renaissance. And it was interesting to me that I like to consider myself fairly knowledgeable about psychedelic history, 
but many of these people I was not really familiar with. So I'm very grateful that you introduced me to the psychedelic elders. And I think that there's a reason why many of them aren't that well known. So I hope that we can get into that a little bit as well. But let me start by asking, who are our psychedelic elders? And after interviewing this group of people, what are some of the main lessons that these elders have to teach us? The public has been given massive amounts of disinformation by the federal government, state governments, and local governments for over 50 years. As a result of this disinformation campaign, the public has been denied access to medicines that have huge potential for healing a wide variety of emotional issues, as well as enhancing creativity, as well as being used for scientific purposes. As a result of this disinformation, the federal government has been able to keep psychedelic medicines illegal for over 50 years. Scientists at the loftiest halls of our great universities have not been allowed to do research. This is an amazing thing when you think about it, Nick. Mm -hmm. If you read in the papers a headline, scientists not allowed to do basic research, you'd expect that that headline was from Russia or, or China or some totalitarian country. But to have such a thing happen in the United States, which is a country that I've been proud of all my life, is astonishing. And it's not something I'm proud of. So I felt that I wanted to make a contribution towards the public realizing that there's a lot of benefit in these medicines. And I thought, what better way to advance this cause than to introduce the public to elders, people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and even 90s who have been experimenting courageously with these psychedelic medicines for 40 or 50 years. Mm. And that was the purpose of the book. I, I searched for prominent elders, including since you looked at the book, you know, some in Europe, Frederica Merkel Fisher, right? The, the brilliant Swiss psychiatrist who actually was arrested and taken out of her house at three o'clock in the morning. And for what reason? For having taught other medical doctors had to use psychedelic medicines. What a shame on all of us. What a stain on all our characters. So I asked these people to come forth. The idea being, Nick, I thought not only would the elders, these prominent elders, show the public that contributing people, good people, smart people, professional people, good parents, good neighbors, that's what these people are, these people that I selected. The public could see that these people were experimenting with benefit with these psychedelic medicines. This is the real McCoy. This is real life mm 
stories that these people are telling. And I thought that by selecting elders, they would be willing to come out from hiding because they would have less to lose. What are you going to do to a 75-year-old psychologist <laughs> or an 83-year-old psychiatrist? You know, it's a little late right. in the game. Right. So, and they all agreed to come out, and some of them were very, uh, very famous people in their own right. Hmm. Dean Adele, for example, at one time right. was one of the most famous doctors in America. You know, so that's the, that's the short answer to your question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful that they did. And it's uh, something that I considered myself in terms of kind of coming out of the psychedelic, psychedelic closet, as it were. And it, you know, I know that even in LGBTQ community where you have people, you know, coming, coming out of the closet, that that was seen as a political act. And I see the same thing with psychedelic medicines and the elders have, as you pointed out, a little bit less to lose, but it's something I've often wondered about because I'm, I address psychedelics quite frequently on this podcast, but I still teach and I've often wondered, well, you know, what would happen if just one of the schools I teach at decided, yeah, no, we can't have this anymore. We can't allow this person to continue teaching for us. So I think it's still a very real concern but having the psychedelic elders coming out and like you say, showing the world that, you know, these are good citizens, these are good people, you know, they're good neighbors is incredibly invaluable. I mean, it's a, a service that is so desperately needed, I think. So I'm really grateful for that. And the fact that you are concerned, not just merely about the stigma, but about that you could lose your livelihood is a very real concern. And when I approach people around the country and around the world to participate in the book, there was no question that many people were afraid to open up because they still had faculty positions or mm -hmm. positions of sensitivity where they thought they could lose their actual livelihood for merely having ingested a vegetable. Right. All right. Yeah. And I, you know, I always speak in the past tense, typically when I talk about my experience with them and, you know, I teach religious studies. That's one of the main courses I teach. And so altered states of consciousness come up quite a bit, quite frequently. And so do the ideas of psychedelic medicines. And I always want to be honest with my students. I feel that I would be doing them a great disservice by not having conversations about these substances. And it seems to me that it would create more damage to ignore it or, you know, as many in my generation and the generations that followed were told, you know, well, just say no, <laughs> just say no. And it seems like that is keeping us in darkness and in ignorance. That was Nancy Reagan's slogan. Right. And it was one of the most ridiculous slogans that I've ever heard in my life to say to chemically dependent people. And that's mm -hmm. who it was, it was aimed at. Right. Just say no to drugs. Mm -hmm. and, and telling a chemically dependent person to just say no, that's sort of like telling a person that has a twitch to just stop doing it. 
right. or telling a person who's stooped over, stand up straight, or maybe telling a person who's overweight, just say no to food. Mm. I mean, that, that is, it was almost insulting that, that the, president, the president's wife made such a comment. But right. then again, you know, they were from Hollywood, so they get, <laughs> they get, they get excused. They get mm. a pass on, on saying stupid things to the American public. Yeah. Well, and it wasn't just saying things to the American public, but it made its way through the school systems in terms of, I think, the D.A.R.E. programs, the drug and resistance education. And, you know, I went through that when I was in school, and I don't really remember them telling us anything of any kind of value about psychedelic medicines. And I think that it's important to keep referring to them as medicines rather than drugs. It's essential to report them as medicines when they are used as medicines. Mm -hmm. It's okay to refer to them as drugs when they're being used recreationally, but it's really important for the public to learn to differentiate when the exact same substance, the same molecules are being used recreationally or are being used medicinally. And, the, and the, the, the difference, Nick, is that when we use something recreationally, it's more like, okay, we're going out on Saturday night, let's take blah, blah. You know, it's sort of like, let's have a couple of drinks. Okay, let's have a, or we're gonna hang out on Saturday afternoon and let's drop some acid. I understand that. I'm not commenting on that. That's not in my arena. My, although I'm all for having fun safely. My arena is medicine. And when you take that exact same substance, whether it's LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, ayahuasca, 5-MeO-DMT, whatever it happens to be, when you take it with a professional protocol, what that means is you have a guide you spend some time before the event on what your intention is, what the mission statement is. You then spend the following day taking the medicine and experiencing it in the presence of a guide. You then spend the following day with the guide again, at least for several hours, integrating. And then hopefully you spend more time with your own private consultant or friends or family further integrating the experience. So it is a experience over time, whereas recreationally, it's a one-off for Saturday afternoon or Saturday night or what have you. Very important differentiation. Mm. So for the people in the audience who may not be entirely familiar with psychedelics as medicines, can you say a little bit about how they are being used medicinally. What are some of the beneficial uses of the psychedelic medicines? Well, going back to prior to 1967, when the United States declared LSD illegal and then went on a campaign to make certain that all the other major countries in the world followed suit, and this was thanks to the legacy of Harry Anslinger, who was the first, the chief of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, infamously so. 
prior to 1967, there had been quite a bit of research, not just the research done by the United States government in that notorious uh, NK Ultra experiment where they gave LSD to people who didn't know they were getting it, which was a remarkable thing for the government to do. But there was a lot of real scientific research looking at the possibility that LSD would be very effective with alcoholism. So we have that seminal research that we need to now come back to because we're having a bit of a psychedelic renaissance. The government is allowing a certain amount of research and we can follow that early research and look at the possible e efficacy of LSD with alcoholism. More recently, Roland Griffiths, Dr. Roland Griffiths of, of Johns Hopkins did a seminal piece of research using psilocybin for depression. And I interviewed him on my radio program many years ago on Mind, Body, Health and Politics, and it's on the archive if people want to listen to it. But that, that study went all around the world because, Nick, what he demonstrated or what the research really told us, he didn't demonstrate it, the research showed us was that one properly admitted, uh, uh, administered dose of psilocybin mushroom had a positive effect on depression a year later. So we're talking about the pharmaceutical companies selling antidepressants, which you take every single day for an entire year and give them an annuity basically, compared to one administration and a year later you still have a positive effect. We don't even know yet what would happen if instead of one administration over the year, suppose it was once every three months. What would that, we'll find out when more research is being done. So depression is certainly there. End of life, end of life typically, and by the way, I'm writing another book right now on end of life healing with psychedelics. Fascinating stuff, Nick. There's a great deal of anxiety and depression in our culture regarding dying. Unfortunately, over the years, I think mostly religion, but there could be other contributing factors, have instilled in the public a fear of death. It's a, it's a, it's a absurd thing to do, but it was done for control. Because if you convince people that there's an afterlife, and then you convince people that the afterlife is either heaven or hell, and then you convince them that if you, they do what you tell them while they're here, they'll go to heaven. But if they don't do what you tell them, they'll go to hell. You've got a lot of control over hundreds of millions, if not billions and billions of people, because they, they're afraid now that there's a place called hell that they're going to go to. And so nobody's perfect. Everybody's made mistakes in their lifetime. So you've got an inordinate number of people who are afraid of dying because they may be in the fires of hell for, for eternity. Very scary. There's evidence that psychedelic medicines are healing to depression and anxiety as related to transitioning into what we call dying. I put it transitioning into what we call dying purposefully because in my reality, Nick, no one really knows what comes next. 
we don't know whether there really is another place or whether we go to sleep and never wake up with no dreaming. We don't really know if our spirits go somewhere else and collect with one another or whether the spirits get buried with us in the ground. This is one of the great unknowns of this mystery called life. So, you, you know, you can choose your options, but one option I think is better for everybody, which is to transition into that state gracefully with acceptance and even possibly what I aspire to is to be grateful and celebrate that I had a little time here on what's called the earth, the planet. Mm. And, and I experienced something that we call life. That seems to me a, a great aspiration as a way to go. Yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Now with the psychedelic medicines and end of life, I'm curious, would this also benefit, do you think, not just the person who is dying, but the family members, the loved ones who are also going through a grieving process for the person who is dying? Absolutely, Nick. Absolutely. Because those people are in a combination of grieving it brings up their own fear of dying. It brings up their fear of losing the person, of what life's going to be like without them. And of course, in situations where the person dying is the breadwinner, it brings up fear of financial loss. Mm. Many things are brought up when a close relative is passing. And to be able to gain acceptance of this as a developmental stage and to gain gratitude for the fact that we had that person in our lives for the period that we had them to focus if you will on the part of the glass that's full not the glass that's empty celebrate their life rather than their death be joyous in the fact that they were here i mean when i contemplate nick that there's an untold number. A Google is the largest number that you can make. There's a Google of sperm that never made it to an egg on this planet. And there's a Google of eggs that never received a sperm. But you and I and everyone else who's living here, we made it. Our sperm connected with our egg and we got this gift called life. What an amazing thing. I believe we ought to be taught right from the beginning that we just got a big fat gift. We're here. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're not, we're not, those, those sperm and eggs that never made it, they don't even know they're in non-existence. They have no consciousness whatsoever. But here we are, we made it and we get to do our life every day. That alone is a great deal to be grateful for, regardless of our circumstances. And yeah. I think I've learned a lot of what I'm telling you now from psychedelic medicines. Yeah, I had a previous guest that the way they phrased it, and, and this was also in regards to psychedelics, but one of the things that it reveals to us is that we live in the midst of a miracle. And it seems that that's 
exactly what you're describing right there is that we're a lot, you know, this is a phenomenal gift and something of a miracle. Yeah, I don't use that particular word right. because it has religious overtones, sure. but but we, we, we have something extremely, you know, beyond extremely special. Right. You know, we've got we've got life. Yeah. And, and, and here we are. And yeah. so. Within that. I believe we're entitled to explore hmm. and part of exploration is scientific inquiry into everything that comes out of the ground, whether it's rocks, whether it's trees, whether it's people, whether it's animals, but certainly including these substances that give us an opportunity to experience life in a completely different way, because that's really what the psychedelics do. They show us that the reality we're in is not the only reality. There are other realities out there, just like we're learning now. When I was a kid, we thought the universe as we know it is, quote, the universe. And there were nine planets. And everybody accepted the fact that there were nine planets in our universe. But Nick, you and I, we, we know now there are many more planets than that. And there are more universes. And so by the same token, there are more realities and the psychedelics, they offer us an opportunity to briefly live in a different reality. And one of the realities that they allow us to live in is a reality of witnessing mm. from a different perspective, our own behavior. Mm. We see our pluses, we see our minuses, we see our assets, we see our liabilities. We see things we're proud of. We think we, we see things that we're ashamed of, but what by looking and seeing so much of ourselves, it also allows us the opportunity to sculpt ourselves into a new way of being, to look at those things we don't like and change them. And that is a very exciting aspect of psychedelic medicine. And that is why, people report so often that the amount of insight that they gained during these brief psychedelic experiences is perhaps as much as a year or two or three of therapy, if they ever would have gotten there, because sometimes doors open up that simply don't open in therapy, or at least maybe for, for a decade or a very long period of time. And so that's one of the very exciting potentials of these psychedelics. And that's one of the things that the elders in my book, Psychedelic Wisdom, are reporting. What these things that they found, these things that they discovered, and how they, they their connection to other human beings and their sense of connection to nature that they never had before, opening up new ways of experiencing and loving the world. Very exciting stuff. Yeah. Well, it is. And, you know, it's, I can understand why the government would want to squash that because, you know, it, it, like you said, it's control. And I see these psychedelic medicines as with what you were just saying, helping us achieve becoming the 
best citizens of planet earth that we can be and connecting to the planet. And that's something that comes up quite a, quite frequently in these interviews is this sort of connection to the earth. A term that I've heard that uh, recently that I really like is not psychedelic, but ecodelic, that there's something that really brings out or drives home, I should say, this interconnectedness that is inherent to all life. I like that ecodelic. My friend, Dr. Annie Sprinkle has coined a term called, she calls herself an ecosexual uh. <laughs> because she, she finds that she's open to having sex with the wind, sex with the ocean, sex with trees. She connects on the sexual level with all of nature because mm. sex has been at the forefront of her research over her, right. over her career. Do you know, yeah. you know of Annie Sprinkle? I know the name. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, sex and psychedelics, those are probably the two big taboos, aren't they? Sex, psychedelics, religion, mm. politics, and money. Yeah. Those are those are the taboo topics in our culture that we've got to rip the covers off and start talking about openly. Right. And sex and psychedelics is a topic in and of itself that I'd love to talk to you about. So from my perspective, Nick, you mentioned the government hmm. and I believe that there's a, there's a, our country and the planet is on a collision course between two opposing ideologies and psychedelics are related to this conflict. On the one hand, we have a group that I call the social Darwinists. These people are sort of king of the hill people who believe that the strongest are the ones that are fit to lead and others are meant to be left behind. So they apply that to economics and social life as well. So if a people at the top have an inordinate amount of money, their argument is they're supposed to have the money because they're the fittest at making money and, uh, and having power. And the people who are left behind are detritus. They're just like animals that never made it or ants in the hill that died, and that's okay. And the ones at the top, the finest, will rule the show. And those social Darwinists tend to prefer ruling by non-democratic or republic means. They tend to prefer ruling by an, an autocracy, a dictatorship, that kind of ruling with somebody at the top, that somebody being, quote, the fittest. On the other side, we have the group that I call the humanists. And the humanists believe that we're all in this together. We're all humans on the planet. Everybody deserves at least equal dignity and respect. And furthermore, there's enough to go around so that everybody will have food, shelter, education, and health care. And these two groups are colliding. They are colliding powerfully in the United States. And as we can see, they're colliding in other countries around the world. How do psychedelics fit in? I think psychedelics offer people different paradigms. And one of the paradigms, as you pointed out, is that 
when you take psychedelics, certainly several of the experiences, you're going to have a deeper reverence for the planet and you're going to have a deeper respect and reverence for life itself, which is going to make it much more difficult to do the kinds of things that the social Darwinists need to do in order to rule, which includes war. Yeah. And, you know, it's pointed out in the book that this war on war on some drugs was really one of the primary reasons that it was launched was to squash the social movements of the humanist, as you describe them, and to keep the social Darwinist sort of model in play. And, you know, where I see psychedelics also helping with this is that the social Darwinists have a wrong view of evolution, where it's all about competition, whereas Darwin's actually talking about cooperation quite frequently. And I think psychedelics teach us that. Psychedelics definitely teach us cooperation and collaboration, which is really our natural state, Nick. Human beings, we're friendly tribal animals. We like hanging out together. We like doing things. Look at all the things we do together, whether it's a sewing club or watching basketball or playing golf or drinking together or eating. I mean, I could go on endlessly with the things that people like to do together and and rarely with any kind of animosity. But we do have to be aware all the time that there is this small group of social Darwinists and they are very difficult. They tend to be predators. They want to dominate. They want to run the show. They are not collaborative and they're not necessarily cooperative unless it's for some reason that for their own agenda. So that's the conflict. And very often the Darwinists, although a very smaller group, they can be more powerful because they're willing to do things inherently And this is key, Nick. The Darwinists are willing to do things that the humanists do not want to do. You see, the Darwinists, for example, the social Darwinists, they're willing to play the games with no rules. They'll play by no rules at any minute and do any damn thing they please in order to win. Whereas the humanists believe that's bad form to do certain things. So they want to avoid doing it. And so what that means is you've got a mismatch. You've got one group that's willing to do anything to win and the other group that's only willing to play within certain rules. And that's problematical. That is very problematical, very concerning to me. Yeah, 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 to me as well. And this idea of the social Darwinist and the control and winning at any cost, it also brings to mind the many of the formal religions because you know you mentioned earlier these ideas of heaven and hell and control from religion and i wanted to ask you because the interviews i think in all of them there may be an exception here or there but one of the first questions that you ask the psychedelic elders is where they came from in terms of religion You know, what was their religious tradition or history? And I was curious, 
why? Why, why, why start off with that question? Because I wanted to know to what extent their lives were influenced by religion. But I also wanted to know in these so prominent people, to what extent as they researched, as they grew smarter and wiser, to what extent did they maintain their religion? And if you noticed, for the vast majority of them, they didn't maintain the religions that they started out with. Hmm. They freed themselves up from such constraints. And that's happening in the United States now. There's clear hmm. evidence that there's a move away from organized religion. And I think that's a very healthy movement because what religion is basically saying not to offend and not to say there wasn't good intent at the beginning. But what religion is basically saying is when you have problems, when you have issues, when you have challenges, look outside yourself. The look outside could be pray to a higher God. The look outside could be go to your priest or your rabbi or your inman. It could be, but it's going outside. And that is the opposite of what I have learned from my research into psychedelic medicines, which is most often, if not always, the answers are inside. When somebody's, something is bothering me inside, I need to go inside. When I see myself doing something I'm not proud of, I need to go inside and work on that so that I behave differently. But going outside, going outside is the beginning actually of paranoia because that means there's something out there that may be dangerous. But when we go inside, we may face demons, but we can handle them because they're inside of us. They're not coming at us and hitting us. They're simply disturbing our internal state, which means we have the power to change our internal state. And that's one of the things that psychedelic medicines do, because there's, there's a, an important aspect of psychedelics that, that needs to be discussed. And that is, and that is, is this better when I do this? That's actually very clear. Uh, okay, good. Yeah. Was I clear before I pulled this closer? You were okay. It was, you, I, there wasn't any distortion okay, and, good. or anything like that, but this is perfectly clear. Yeah. Okay. I lost my train of thought. Oh, we were discussing religion and you were talking about how the demons are within. Oh yes. The bad yeah. trip. I want to yeah, talk yeah. about a bad trip. Okay. It's important when discussing psychedelic medicines to always talk about what I call unwanted complications of medicine, UCM. Pharmaceutical companies call them side effects, but I don't, because to me, to call an effect that's negative a side effect is sort of purposely sanitizing it and making it sound smaller. But these effects don't happen on the side and they don't happen on anybody's side, left side or right side. Negative effects happen to the entire system. And that's why I call them 
UCM, Unwanted Complications of Medicine. One of the un unwanted complications, at least unwanted to some people, of the psychedelics is that material can be released that's been trapped. Hmm. And some of the material that's been trapped can be terrifying. Trauma, sexual abuse, being hit by a parent, being ostracized in front of a whole class when a little child in school, being bullied in the schoolyard. Various things of trauma can be buried and they can be unleashed when you take a psychedelic medicine. Now, if you take that psychedelic medicine recreationally and the demons come flying out, that can be a really bad trip. So if you're at a rock show or you're walking down the street or you're in a park and the demons come flying out and you don't have anybody to talk to about it or just your friends and you don't know what to say, it can be most terrifying. However, if you've taken that exact same substance with a professional guide, having those demons come out is the best possible thing that can happen because then together with your guide, you can address the demon, you can heal the trauma, and you can come out of the experience with a sense of confidence that you've cleaned out one of the boxes, which no longer will hold a sword of Damocles over your neck that it might pop out at any time in your existence. And you've been spending years trying to keep it down, down, down. We don't wanna look at the fact that I got raped. So it's being, you know, sequestered in this little box but gosh knows every time i see a rape on tv or i hear about it or i read about it i get all anxious and all screwed up but now in the setting with the guide the demon is unleashed and there's an opportunity for healing and for moving on and that's another positive so in a way there is no such thing as a negative experience, but there are terrifying experiences that become positive in the right circumstance, but continue to be terrifying if you're not in the right circumstance. And that's very important. And it's important for the public to know that these medicines do have the power to unleash the demons. Mm, yeah. And I think it's also important to note that physically speaking you're addressing the psychological and spiritual aspect here but physically speaking they're very safe i don't think anyone has ever died from an lsd overdose i think you would have to eat like your body weight in psilocybin mushrooms to harm yourself unlike many of the prescription medicines that are given out for things like depression and whatnot that is absolutely accurate, Nick. I interviewed Dr. Dave Nichols on my program. He's probably the foremost scientist with LSD on the planet, and he confirms what you just said. There are no known deaths from LSD, even with people who have taken amounts that would stagger you. I mean, I had a patient one time who took 2,000 micrograms, 
and, and, you know, and, and, and <laughs> yeah, on purpose. And I mean, that's an example, but people have taken even larger doses than that. And, and of course, they, they're laying on their backs for a period of time, but no one has died from it. And, and the same from MDMA. There have been a couple of deaths from ayahuasca that have been reported in South America, but it's uncertain whether what the circumstances were, but it's at least we, we make note of that. The, the deaths from MDMA seem to be a result of dehydration, taking it recreationally in heated circumstances or spending too much time in a hot tub. Now, there is one thing I do want to add, though. While death is not an issue with these, and certainly is an issue with, with, with some of the medicines from the pharmacopoeia, from the big pharmac pharmaceutical houses, there is a physiological change that occurs in the early stages of psychedelics to take note of, and that is an increase in blood pressure and an increase in heart rate. And both of those also occur with marijuana. And it's well known that the certain percentage of the population when smoking marijuana get paranoid. And sometimes when taking psychedelics, there can be some paranoia during that early stage. And this is my theory on where that paranoia comes from. A person smokes some marijuana and their heart rate, let's say their average heart rate is 72 and it goes up to say 96 and their blood pressure 120 over 78 or 118 over 68 jumps up 30 or 40 points to 156 over 93, right? When that happens, a significant percentage of the population become aware of it. They become aware that something is going on, that they're not necessarily wearing watches that tell them what their heart rate is, or what their blood pressure is, but they're aware of something, right? And it's uncomfortable. The blood pressure going up with the heart rate going up is uncomfortable for a certain percentage of the population who notice it. Not everybody notices it, by the way, but a certain percentage do. Again, going back to our teaching, we are taught when something feels not right, we start looking around for what's causing it instead of the way we need to be trained, in my opinion, which is when you feel something inside, go inside. So what these folks need to do who have that experience is they need to sit down in a chair or lay down on a bed, close their eyes and breathe and be quiet for about five or 10 minutes and their blood pressure will come down and their heart rate will come down and they'll be feeling okay again. And that's what they need to do because that's all that's going on. And if they don't sit down and do that, it'll go away anyway because that blood pressure and heart rate spike does not last for the entire psychedelic experience or marijuana experience, but it does come on in the beginning. And it's important for people to note that. And, and particularly people who have had an experience with one of these medicines, and it's been negative because of the heart rate and uh, blood pressure. And so they're afraid to do it again. And so that's something for them to take note of. Yeah. And this just highlights the need for psychedelic elders and their wisdom, because this is something that you may not, you know, I don't think is offered in schools when <laughs> people are taught about drugs or, you know, these psychedelic substances. It's important information, I think. I didn't even know 
that there are any schools other than maybe graduate schools where, but not high schools where people are even being taught anything about psychedelics. I, I think they're only mentioned very, very briefly. And there's still the just say no. Just say mantra. no. Yeah. 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 What a yeah. legacy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have to ask my brother's children. They're the two of them recently graduated high school and one's still in. So I'm going to have to ask them what the schools are teaching them. That's a great um, idea. Where do they live? Yeah. Arizona. Whereabouts? Just outside of Phoenix. Okay. Yeah. You'll, you'll, yeah. you'll learn something. Yeah. Well, I know that my niece has expressed an interest in psilocybin mushrooms. I think largely because of depression. I think that somehow, some way, maybe it was through conversations with me, I don't know, but somewhere she did get the information that psilocybin can be very helpful in dealing with depression, which you spoke about a little bit ago. But by the way, I wanted to come back to something you said early sure. when, you when you talked about the courses that you teach. Mm -hmm. I, I interviewed a theologian from Harvard named Christian Greer, mm. and his interview is on my website, and he uh, mindbodyhealthandpolitics.org, and he talks about the history of psychedelics in religion going back mm -hmm. hundreds, if not thousands of years, might be of interest to you and some of yeah. your uh, students. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I always include that. I typically start with, uh, because I do mostly history of religions. So I typically begin with the concept of the shamanic and the possibility of entheogens there. And I also, you know, when you look at the history of the Indian traditions, you have to talk about Soma. I talk about the mystery traditions in Greece and, you know, the Mediterranean area. So it's always there. It's always kind of in the background. And I know that many people just don't even address it, but I feel that it's important. It's part of our intellectual and spiritual heritage. And I would be doing a disservice to the students by not addressing it. I think so. You'd be leaving something out that's of importance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you, I have a few more questions. I know we're starting to run out of time here a little bit, but I do have a few more questions. One is I wanted to ask about continued use, especially as we get older. And this is something that came up in some of the interviews. And I think that people quoted the, I think it's the Ram Das quote, which someone had said to me before is, you know, when you get the message, hang up the phone. And I know that in conversations I've had with some people, there is this sort of assumption of, well, that's something for young people to do. Why would you even want to do that anymore? You're not 20 years old anymore. And it seems to me that that assumption is that they're just for having a good time on a Saturday. And they're not actually recognizing the potential of these medicines for psychological and spiritual work. So I wanted to know about the continued use as one ages? Well, with due respect to my colleague and acquaintance, formerly Richard Alpert, Dr. Richard Alpert, and now Ramdas, I, I don't agree 
mm. about when you get the message, hang up the phone. I agree more with one of the elders in my book, Psychedelic Wisdom, Dr. Alan Ajaya, who took LSD over 900 times. And when I asked him if he's going to do it again, and he's in his late 70s or 80s, he said, definitely, yes. And I said, how so? Why would you do that? And he said, because there's always more to learn. Mm. And I think we're capable of going on learning until the, the end of time that we can learn. I'm 83 years old, and I use various psychedelics on a fairly regular basis. I find them an important aspect of my life for continued growth, for working on my relationship with my adorable wife, and for creativity. Mm. Just recently, for example, I took 0.39 grams of psilocybin, a very mild dose, and spent five hours addressing the cover of my next book, what the, what the colors would be like, what the fonts would look like, what the actual words would be. And I had a marvelous time creating all kinds of pictures in my head and, and, and then afterwards taking notes. So I'm using it another way. I have, I have a 60% blockage of cholesterol in my left anterior descending artery. So I spend time under, with psychedelics going into that artery with my mind's eye, attempting to wear it down, sand it off, and use the laser of my mind to decrease it. Mm. So that's another way that I use it. And I think that's something that all elders can do. But given, given the fact that for the most part, they do not cause medical problems, they're available to elders. Now, there are some caveats. People with cardiovascular issues need to be careful with MDMA. We know that. That's not true for LSD and psilocybin, as best we know. So you have to be looking at what medicine and for what group. Also, there are great concerns amongst all of us in the professional community about people who have certain psychological backgrounds. Not because eventually we won't be able to get to them, but we need to go slowly and work on other populations first before we delve into these people who might be set off in some way that we don't want, that would be unfavorable. And so there's a vetting procedure that most guides go through and most and all professional people go through. And that is important. Now, I, I want to come back to that. But before then, I do want to ask you about what you were just speaking towards in regards to sort of a visualization process when it comes to health, because this is something that I've intuited in my own experiences. And you wrote in the book, and this is a direct quote, I've come to believe that we can learn how we heal through the use of psychedelic substances. When we learn how healing takes place, we will then begin to apply it to other areas of our body. 
we will be able to apply that healing to a kidney or a pancreas or a liver or even a heart. We will learn how to take volitional control of involuntary processes. And you write then that that is one of the biggest pieces of wisdom that you've learned from your psychedelic experiences. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that, because it's something, like I said, that I've kind of intuited when I've explored these substances myself. Nick, if you cut the back of your hand accidentally about, let's say, a two and a half inch slice, what will happen to that slice? It'll just start healing naturally on its own accord. Exactly. Who did that? Well, the body did it itself, I would imagine. Correct. Whose body is it? Oh, my body. (laughs) So what that means is, in effect, you did it. Hmm. You can distance yourself from it by the way we do in our language by saying, my body did it, but you're your body. I, I didn't hear you're not claiming that I healed the back of your hand or any doctor or you or your or, or anybody in your life. You you healed it. Mm. But you don't know how. Mm. You don't know how you did that. Because as you said, it happened, quote, naturally, which means it sort of happened on its own. But things don't happen on their own. You know, you're in charge of that body. So some part of Nick knows how to heal the back of your hand. What I'm saying is, suppose you could learn the mechanism by which you did what you did. So now Nick is in the know. Hmm. Well, if Nick is in the know with regard to how his quote, his body healed that cut on the back of his hand. The next step might be for Nick to be in the know about how to go inside and do the same thing on a kidney or a pancreas or a heart. Hmm. And that's how I get there. Yeah. That we are doing these things, whether it's a cut on the hand or various other illnesses, but we have yet on a very deep and basic level to comprehend literally how we are doing it. And once, once we learn that, it's going to be a whole new ball game with regard to the entire field of medicine. Hmm. And what I'm putting forth is the possibility that the psychedelic medicines will be the tool to allow us to focus our mind or our consciousness, whatever you want to call it, it'll be the tool for focusing so that we can learn how we do certain things within our own selves. Hmm. So healing with conscious intent. Beautifully said. Yeah. And my guess would be that there has been very little or no actual research because of the prohibition in regards to psychedelics and healing in the manner that you're describing, which seems to me 
something of a crime against humanity. I'm glad you put it that way, because I feel it's that way at times myself, mm. that it is a crime to keep us from researching areas that could be so beneficial to us. Yeah. And particularly this one of, of, of a way of self-healing. Mm. Yeah. But again, absolutely. the psychedelics would, would the psychedelics do not get us there. The psychedelics would be a tool mm. to getting us there. And the closest thing to that kind of research that I can share with you is that in the, I think the late sixties or seventies, there were, there was a couple who did a lot of research on visual imagery treating cancer. Hmm. And when their research was analyzed over and over again, it wasn't all that successful as it first seemed to be, but it was seminal research because it opened up the field for the possibility that we can use the power of our mind to heal ourselves. And that's what this is really about. Right, right, right. So let me ask you in the last few minutes that we have together, we're seeing currently, you know, we keep saying that there's a psychedelic renaissance, and I think that's fair and accurate. And it's looking as if MDMA will be legalized for medicinal use, probably within a year or so, thanks to the hard work of Rick Doblin and the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. And as you had noted before, there has been some research done in some other areas with depression and end of life and whatnot. I, I'm curious, where do you think we're heading? If you could look into a crystal ball or something, where do you think we're going to be 10 years from now? I think we're going to be either very close to or already having achieved the ability to download information from the human brain onto a chip and vice versa. Hmm. So I think what will happen is we will gather huge amounts of information from people's brains from around the world and they'll go into a chip and then those chips will be available on some basis to us depending on whether the social darwinists win or the humanists win it'll either be all of us will have that available or a very few will have that available at a very high price and so we will have we will have Google available in our own head, mm. which will give us access to you, an inordinate amount of information that we haven't been used to. So that's going to give us a period of adjustment on what life is going to be like when so many people are going around with huge amounts of information in their head that they never had before. The next thing I think that'll happen is we will insert those same chips that are inserted that we are transferring information into the human brain from, we're going to put those chips into robots. Hmm. And so the robots will not only have all the information from human brains that's possible, but the robots will have all the information from each other as well. 
At that point, I believe robots will control the show on the planet. And as part of the evolution of everything on the planet, we will be moving towards extinction, not as extinction of, of ourselves totally, but a, extinction of beings that require this corporal body that has all these parts that wear out and that have a limited time here. And we're gonna move into our next stage of development, which is our consciousness, our cognitive ability in a mechanical body, mm. which will then be the guiding force on the planet. And of course, those robots will not need food, so the, the planet will do much better without all the extraction. They won't need oil, and they won't need so many of the things that we're extracting from the planet. They won't need to defecate and urinate, so we won't need all that kind of stuff. They're not gonna make a lot of garbage, so it's gonna be a much cleaner planet with the robots in control. And of course, certain people are gonna have a very difficult time with that because they're, they're thinking that robots are, are robotic. They're, they're not people, but mm. they really will be. They'll just be us in our next stage of development, just like we used to be monkeys and now we're humans and then we're gonna be robots. Mm. And I even have a guess as to what's gonna happen after the robots. I think what will happen is the robots will be so advanced in their thinking that they will figure out a way to dispense with their robotic bodies and they'll be pure consciousness. Mm. So that, that's my, my, yeah. my that, well, that. well, yeah, well, so the, the, the chips are almost like a psychedelic themselves that, you know, you're suggesting that we can insert somehow, some way. I but think, I, I think Musk is working on the very thing I'm talking about right now in his program called Neuralink. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's what Neuralink's about. Could be. I, I would prefer someone other than him to do it, I think. <laughs> he does seem to have yeah. strayed a bit, doesn't he? Yeah. Well, I was actually kind of curious in terms of the where we may be in terms of psychedelics, because it seems that we're moving towards, you know, legalization for s some scenarios. I know that there are decriminalization movements in various places. We just saw Colorado decriminalized, I know, psilocybin, I think, statewide for personal use. And the model that seems to be the dominant model is with the sitters that you had mentioned, especially, you know, when someone's having one of these Un unwanted what was it com complicating unwanted complications, complications of, medicine. of medicine yeah but what about just the personal use for creativity do you think that there could be something like you know i don't know how would that work to give access to someone who wants to use it for self-exploration or creativity without having to get a prescription or see a therapist Eventually, every state in the union is going to decriminalize or legalize psilocybin, marijuana, ayahuasca, mm. because it's they're easier to get through, and MDMA, of course. The, break, the method of breaking through 
and I've been part of this from the beginning, is medicine rather than recreation. So we broke through with medical marijuana. That was the, that was the, the first breakthrough. And once you get enough medical marijuana going, then of course, the people who are not using it medicinally can see that nobody's falling apart in the streets. They want to try it and you have a gold rush going on. Things that grow in the ground are going to be legalized. You're asking about five, 10 years from now. They'll all be legalized. There's going to be a bigger issue with the laboratory drugs because the government has created more fear and dis disinformation about that which comes from the laboratory versus that which comes out of the ground. From my perspective, molecules are molecules. Whether you make, a, make them in the ground, they're grown, or whether you make them in the lab, I mean, you can make psilocybin, and scientists do, in the laboratory. You can't distinguish that psilocybin from the psilocybin that's in the mushroom. But we've got this voodoo going on with the government, so it's going to take a much longer time for, for LSD to get legalized. MDMA was the perfect breakthrough because it's the, it's the least powerful of all the psychedelics. It lasts the shortest period of time, an hour or two, you can go right back to work the same afternoon as you took it. So it allows for that. That's not the same with the other psychedelics, which is an issue with the other psychedelics because they take so long. And, and that means you have a guide with you for a long period of time, which, which is an expense. And we have to deal with that, Nick. We really haven't gotten around to the finances of making these things possible to the public yet because they're still literally for the elite who can afford a guide. And that's right. a very important thing. But MDMA was the perfect breakthrough because it's, it's so effective with post-traumatic stress disorder, which means it could be used with veterans and veterans everybody loves. We all want to take care of veterans. So we have an opportunity to break ground. And the other thing is the country's being hit very hard since the pandemic with depression and anxiety. We all know that. And psilocybin is effective as I stated earlier in the program, for de depression and anxiety. So we have a push there, and you can see the states are gonna and cities are going to start rolling over in that regard. What's going to happen then? Of course, people are going to use these things recreationally as well as medicinally. You know, that's how life is. There's nothing you can do about it. But from my perspective, I believe in our Constitution. It was the strongest statement on the planet when we made it, and it still stands pretty strong over 200 years later in terms of having a democracy and a republic, which is our experiment. I believe it's our constitutional right as citizens of the United States to ingest anything we damn please in the privacy of our own home as long as we don't offend or do something to another human being. Any person has a right to sit in their living room and eat anything they want, including the dining room table, if that's what they want to know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think it was the late Terrence McKenna who once observed, let me see, hopefully I won't mangle this, but if the Declaration of Independence didn't include the right to explore one's own consciousness, then it wouldn't be worth the hemp paper it was written on. <laughs> <laughs> Very well said. Yeah. Very well yeah. said. Yeah, well, he had his way with words. 
So, all right. Well, I understand that we are out of time. So let me ask you two final questions. One is what is coming up next for you? What are you working on next? Well, I have a book coming out on sex that I'm working on. I mentioned earlier that I spent hours inside working on the title and the cover. Right. Yeah. So that's what I'm working on. And I'm very excited about the book. I'm dedicating it to the sex workers of the world mm. because I believe that women, women's sexuality has been suppressed strongly for thousands of years. The, 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 their sexual desires, their sexual drives, and even their orgasms have been suppressed. And so I have this book coming out on sex and I'm working on that and that's very exciting. And my next book after that is on, I mentioned it to you earlier too, on end of life healing with psychedelics. Mm -hmm. So those are two big projects that I'm working on and I'm excited about. Okay, well, they sound wonderful. I look forward to reading them. Is there a place like a website where people can go to find out more about you and your work? Yes, the website for my program is called Mind, Body, Health and Politics. And the website is mindbodyhealthpolitics.org mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. And there you have all my archives are available and they're open source. Uh, we appreciate subscribers, of course, as you do, but people can go on and listen to anything that they want to. And if you'd be so kind as to send me a, a copy of this interview, I will post it on my website with a reference to your program, Rebel Spirit, so we can cross link each other. Yeah, absolutely. I will most certainly do that. And I will also put links in the show notes and video descriptions for the book, Psychedelic Wisdom. Uh, Thank so you. That people can get it quite easily. It's a really interesting read. And I am so grateful that you brought out the voices of the psychedelic elders, because I think there are voices that, you know, we need to learn from them. You know, definitely. So I'm very grateful. Thank you very much, Nick. Okay. Well, I have really enjoyed this conversation, Richard, and thank you so much. And I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Let's stay in touch. Absolutely. Bye-bye. All right. Goodbye. And that's a wrap on episode 70 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience or view this on Spotify. If you would like to support my work here on Rebel Spirit Radio, please consider becoming a patron. There are currently four levels of membership, Seeker, Sage, Adept, and Guru. Some of the perks available include early access to videos, shout outs to members, a members only Facebook page, access to the Rebel Spirit Radio Discourse server, monthly book club, and the opportunity to join me and special guests for a monthly cocktail apocalypse, happy hour at the end of the world. You can find the link for the Patreon in the show notes or video description. And of course, if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it with friends, family, or even coworkers that you think will enjoy it. That really is one of the best ways you can help and support the podcast. As I have mentioned a few times now, I often kid that I'm here in the Southland doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality, and ecology, psychedelics, and consciousness, and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, please, by all means, help share the good news. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, 
please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a minute to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review. And please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.